Welcome back to the Combo Cup podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you listened to the last episode about ACL tears, I have a very special episode for you today. Today we have Moji Ulawa with us today. He is a Nigerian Olympic weightlifter and bodybuilder. Thank you so much for joining us, Moji. Uh, my pleasure. I'm so excited to bring you guys this episode, not only in honor of the Olympics, but Moji has an incredible comeback story from multiple um, serious injuries that could be career ending for others, but he bounced back really strong from. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. I want to first start off with some of your background. So how did you get into weightlifting? Well, long story short, um, the first time I saw Pumping Iron, which is um, the documentary how bodybuilders was introduced to the world, I was about probably six, maybe seven years old. I was just intrigued by muscles. I'm like, how can that, those guys be that muscular and they're on stage flexing their muscles? So I decided I want to do what they do. I want to have muscle. I, I was a skinny little kid. Um, the body type I have is what you call the super ecto, you know, an ectomorph, which is very skinny. I was prone to injuries. I had something called floating kneecap. I used to play soccer when I was when I was younger. So every time I get tackled and I fall, and I fall hard, my kneecap will float to the side of my leg, and I have to snap the back. That's how skinny I was. So when I saw these people with a huge amount of muscles, I'm like, I want to be able to build those muscles. So I was so excited that, okay, maybe the next day I'll go to the gym and, and start working out. But unfortunately, I'm originally from Nigeria, West Africa. And I grew, woke up in the morning and I said, okay, I'm going to go to the gym. Not knowing that in the whole island, because I grew up on an island, we didn't have a gym there. And I was really disappointed that, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to build muscle. I'm not going to be able to get stronger. So I just try to forget it, okay? Weeks goes by, and I kept thinking about these guys with big muscles. I'm like, I mean, I can't, I can't forget these guys. So what I did was that one Sunday, I decided to walk around the neighborhood. I went to the local mechanic shop. I saw a rusty bar, some flywheels, some brake pads, and I just grabbed them and dragged them home. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I remembered a few exercises from the documentary. I remember bicep, bicep curls, bench press, shoulder press, squats, and I think I remember pull-ups. So those are the only exercises that I remember. I didn't even know if I was doing them right or wrong, but I just kept doing them, you know. So one day, one of my dad's friends saw me just lifting weights, and he goes, you know, you can go to the mainland, to the sport complex, and learn how to do this the right way. So one day, I went to the mainland, found this, I found the sport complex, and then... That was when it started. From. That was when Olympic lifting started. But I didn't know the difference between bodybuilding and Olympic weightlifting. So when I walk into the gym, the coach said, "We don't, we don't do bodybuilding here. We only do Olympic lifting." I said, "I don't care. As long as I can lift weights, that's all I cared about." So that's that's. I think I started weightlifting um, seriously when I was thirteen. I started messing with it about maybe eight, nine, ten years old. But when I started training officially, was around 14 years old. Wow. So yeah. you kind of had a passion automatically. Automatically, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The first time in the gym, what was it like emotionally? Were you scared, intimidated by the coaches or others? Or I got this. You know what? It was interesting. I played other sports before Olympic weightlifting. My number one sport was soccer. I did gymnastics. I ran track. Played basketball, volleyball for a little while. When I walk into that gym and I saw weights and I saw people dropping weight, the sound 
and the smell of metals just kind of like I felt at home. I wasn't even intimidated at all. I just want to, I just want to be better. I just want to lift it, lift weights, and I, I just wanted to. My goal was to build muscle, mm. and I felt at home. Mm. Yeah. Did you lift with a group or just you and your coach? Well, I lifted with my coach. You know, back then I didn't have Olympic lifting shoes, so I had to lift with barefoot on the oh, platform. Wow. Yeah, I didn't have shoes on. My coach said, "Yeah, you don't have shoes off. You can't wear your school sandals." So he said, "Take your shoes off." I have blisters under my feet sometimes when I train for about maybe 20, 30 minutes. He goes, don't worry, those blisters will turn into calluses and then you'll be stronger. Just like when you have calluses on your hands, when you've gripped the bar. The first time I gripped the bar because the bar was very rough and um, it, it hurts, it hurts. And with time, build, I built a lot of calluses on my hand and then I didn't feel the pain anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When was your first competition? Wow, my first competition, I think I was about 15 years old and um, I couldn't, I was that skinny because they have an official scale where you have to at least weigh, we, we, we weigh in kilos back then. At least you must, you must be able to weigh at least 30 kilos, mm-hmm. which is almost what, 65 pounds, almost 70 pounds. And I couldn't weigh, I didn't, I didn't weigh 30 kilos. So my coach, they wanted to disqualify me. My coach said, okay, hold on. So he put about 10 kilos on the scale and I stood on the scale. So they weighed me and then the minus 10 kilos. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the minus 10 kilos. That's how I was able to, to be able to compete in the competition. Wow. Yeah. It was, the competition was very interesting. I was nervous because I've never done anything like that publicly before. And I, because I was the only one in my weight class. So I basically won my class. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Wow. And one backstory is that my parents didn't even know I was weightlifting. Yeah, really? I lied to them. I didn't because where I'm from, um, there are certain things that people don't do. Like it's sports that very that are very popular in Nigeria is track and field and, and soccer. Weightlifting is not well known, and I know they wouldn't understand why I chose a sport. So I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell my mom. And I just kept doing it. Mm-hmm. And this is how they found out. So I qualified for the nationals. And I told my because I was in the Boy Scout at that time. So oh, we're going to Boy Scout camp and, you know, can you give me some money? We're going to be away for a few days. And they said, okay. So I packed my bags and I went with the team to the <laughs> nationals. And I was the youngest athletes so apparently they featured some of us you know in the national t- uh, news so i didn't know that everyone a lot of people in my neighborhood saw me on tv so i came back home thinking everything is cool nobody knew where i went <laughs> and everybody just kept looking at me funny I'm like what's going on so i got home my mom says drop your bag and i knew with that tone something was going on she goes where did you go I'm not gonna ask you more than once. When she said that, I knew she knew something. So I couldn't lie. So I told her because we had to travel across country to go compete. So she goes, What if something happened to you? What if you get hurt? We don't know where you were. She goes, I thought she was gonna tell me to stop, you know, lifting. And the next day was a Saturday and I was supposed to go train. And I didn't, I just sat there. She goes, When do you go do this lifting thing that you do? said, I do it, you know, almost every day, including Saturday. So you're not going to go today? And I was surprised that she wanted me to go. And 
that was it. That was how she found out. And before then, she found out I was eating a little bit more than my brothers. I kept eating more. Not, no, I didn't even know that it was weightlifting that was making me eat more than before. Oh. Because my muscle, because I keep tearing my muscle down, and my muscle needs more food, more calories to rebuild and repair. So she said, oh, this is the reason why you've been eating more, because you've been lifting weights. And the rest was history. Wow. <laughs> how did that um, first nationals go? It went well. I think I, I won a bronze. I won a bronze in my weight class. So because I was the smallest guy there. So that really kind of opened my mind to if I take this a little bit more serious, I can go further. And that's when it just kind of clicked in my mind that I want to see how far I can go. And there was one of my favorite saying in sports or in life in general is um, the person that take the risk of going too far will find out how far they can go. Wow. Yeah. So I, I wanted to take that risk. That's a great saying. Thank you. Were you the only one in your family who did weightlifting or sports? Yes. I was the only one in my family. And to even make matters worse, no one supported me except for my mom. My dad didn't support me. My uncles, my aunt, they would talk down on me. They would tell me, this lifting weight thing, How? Where you, what are you going to do with it? Boy? You're going to even make money or you're going to even have a job, you know? So I didn't really care if I was going to make money or not because I love the way it made me feel and I love the will and the drive that I get from it. When I go in there, it's like there's nothing matters. When I start lifting, nothing matters but that moment. So it was it was really hard for me being a teenager trying to like find my way, even in the neighborhood. People would laugh at me when I say I'm a, little, I'm a weightlifter, like that weightlifter. So no one took me serious. I was the only one that took myself serious, and my mom, of course. So I just kept doing it regardless of what other people thought about what I was doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's great. Yeah. What is, for those of our listeners who don't know the steps in weightlifting, so you have your starting off nationals. Mm -hmm. What are the competitions that come after that for the next levels? The nationals, we, first of all, we have the state, the regional, the states, the nationals. And then the nationals, if you, if you win your weight class in the national, at the nationals, you get invited into the national camp. So when you get invited into the national camp, that's, and there's a possibility that if you get selected, you're gonna represent the country. The next level is the All-African Games. And I think it was in 1992, I went to my first, not All-African Games, sorry, to dial that back, the All-African Weightlifting Championship, which is all the African countries, they get together, all the weightlifters, and I was selected into the national camp for the first time. I was really excited because I've seen athletes go to the national camp and I've always dreamt of being there. And when I was selected, I was I was really excited. So I made the national team and I was able to represent Nigeria at the All-African Weightlifting Championship and I won three silver there. Wow. Yeah. And from there was the All-African Games. And I was also selected about three years later to go to the All-African Games and I won. That was when my first injury happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what was that injury? So um, when I was warming up, you know, in, in weightlifting, we have two disciplines. Olympic weightlifting, we have two disciplines. We have the snatch and the clean and jerk. The snatch is when you lift the weight from the bottom to the top without stopping. The clean and jerk is when you clean, put the weight up, put it on your shoulders, and then drive it above your shoulders. So as I was warming up, I can feel a little pain on my left elbow. 
And I kept telling my coach, coach, I'm, I'm feeling something funny. And he goes, don't worry, just keep warming up. It's going to go away. So I kept warming up. And then my first lift was about 135 kilos. And I think at that time I was about probably 65 kilos or 67 kilos at that time. And I was going to snatch 130 kilos. And I went out, made my snatch. And then I went back. I can still feel the pain. So the next weight up for me is 135 kilos. So I went out there, preps, getting ready to snatch. And as I grabbed the bar, snatched the weight, I lost my left grip to the end of the bar. And I heard a crunching sound. When I heard that sound, I didn't, I know, I knew something happened, but I couldn't feel any pain. So I heard the sound, the, my, the weight buckled forward and I fell backwards. I rolled backwards. And I said, okay, my coach looked at me and said, get up, get up the platform. So as I was about to get up, I pushed off with my right side and I couldn't feel my left side. And I, come on, why can I find my right, my left arm? So I looked to the left and the lower side of my arm from the elbow down was bent the other way. Oh my. It was, oh. it was behind me. And when I looked at it, my body realized what had happened and I went into a shock. My body went into a shock. And I think that's one of the defense systems that the body used to protect us, I mean, to prepare us for pain. I went into a shock, passed out. They rushed me to the hospital, did an X-ray. And the doctor told me, this All-African Games was actually in Egypt, was in Cairo, Egypt. The doctor said, ah, this injury is very common in weightlifting. So you probably will probably give you a 50-50% chance to come back. So I got out of that. I was really disappointed because actually that one snatch that I did won me a bronze. Mm -hmm. I won a bronze medal. But because I couldn't finish the whole um, competition, I couldn't medal anymore. So I was really sad when I got home back to Nigeria. And I said, okay, maybe this is just a, a little, little hurdle that I have to overcome. And the doctor told me, well, you know, you might want to wait a longer time to recover, go to physical therapy. But that year, I think it was in 1992, was an Olympic year, which is, was the Spain Olympics. And my goal as a little kid was to represent my country at the Olympics. I only went to rehab for about six months. And I decided to enter the, I went, got back training again. I entered the um, 92 Olympic trials. So as I was warming, everything was fine. I trained to get to that level. Everything was fine. I didn't feel any pain. And before then, I got that dislocated my hip. I was doing, three months earlier, I was doing cleans. I went down into the cleans and I couldn't get up. So I kind of moved my hips to the right a little bit. I mean, to the left a little bit to see if I can get up. And that's when I dislocated my hip. And coming back from an injury, now I have another injury. So I, I worked hard. I stopped lifting for a while. I went in, I did a lot of swimming, played other sports, just to allow me to be a little bit more, um, more mobile so I can move a little bit better instead of just lifting weights and keep getting injured. So fast forward to the 92 Olympic trials, I went out for my, my very first attempt, which was 130 kilos, five kilos lighter than the first weight that blew up my elbow. So I went and I snatched the weight as I was coming back up. I heard a buckle. Oh no. But I knew what had happened this time. Mm -hmm. It hurt, but it wasn't as bad 
as the pain was, but I guess my body prepared me for that pain. But I, it buckled to the point where it tore a little bit of my forearm muscle, the, the force tore a little bit on the inside. So that was it. And the next day was in the a back page of one of the sport news newspaper that Olympic hopeful dashed. And when I read that, it just it just sunk me. I can I can say that was the first time I felt what depression was. I was depressed. I felt my dream was over. I didn't have any hope to continue. And the doctors told me, you had this injury twice. Normally, people have this injury one time and the career is over. You had it twice. Sorry, I, I don't think you have any chance of coming back. And then something just struck me at that point when that doctor said that. And I looked at the doctor and said, why did you say that? He goes, but look at your x-ray. Look at your, look at your, I mean, you cannot lift weight without a strong elbow. And I said, and I asked him one question. I said, doctor, I know you have all these tools to measure different things in the body. I said, can you measure my willpower? The doctor said, what? What did you say? I said, yeah. I said, can you, is there a machine to measure willpower? He goes, no. I said, thank you. That's all I need to know. And I walked out of that hospital. It took me almost two, three years I mean, it took me almost a year, I think, to even want to think about weightlifting because they told me I need to stop lifting, which I did stop. But I went to go visit some of my friends at the, at the gym one time, and I saw them lifting. That feeling was still there. Then I thought to myself, if I saw that dream as an Olympian, I mean, if, if it wasn't real, I shouldn't have seen it. So that dream must have been real for me to see it like that. So I felt like this is just one of those things that I have to overcome that's going to teach me a little bit more about myself that I don't even know. So I just got back training again and had to, I had no more ranking. I went from number two in the whole of Africa to no ranking. So I have to start from lifting the bar to I, this time I took my time. I took my time. I allow my body to dictate how far I need to go first before I start pushing a little bit more. And then I came back and started training again. And, um, I remember a couple of times that these two guys that had the same injuries that I had came to me and they said, hey, man, how how were you able to come back doing this when you had yours twice and we had ours once? We went through almost the same treatment, but you able to come back. I said it was just mental. I just, I just refused to allow the physical side of my life to stop me when I have the mental side. And I said, if you have the will, I know this sounds crazy, the willpower and your mental ability to keep going will just help you overcome and help you heal yourself because there's a mental side of healing and there's also the physical side. Wow, that's incredible. What do you think was the biggest thing you learned from well, all three? Like if you had to take one thing away from each of the times you got injured? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think what I learned is that the human body and the human mind is able to, is capable of overcoming anything, any, any, any kind of obstacle that you're going through that you think you will never be able to overcome it. But if you put your mind to it and you tell yourself, you convince yourself, because it's different between someone telling you and you telling yourself. Someone can tell you you can't do something. And when you believe them, you believe your mind believes it with them. But if they tell you you can't do something and you tell yourself the opposite, I always say impossible is an opinion. Mm-hmm. It's not a fact. You know, for me, I love making the impossible possible because it it makes me feel good when something turned out good for me 
And then they're telling me it wouldn't turn out that way. So what I took from that was that it, it brought out certain part of me as a human being that wouldn't have, that would have not been brought out if I hadn't gone through those injuries because it made me tougher as a human being. It made me feel like whatever comes, you know, if you have the, the track, you know, the winning track of overcoming, you let's say you went through five or six or 10 different things that's very, very challenging and you overcome them, that means you're 10 and 0. Mm-hmm. So if you've never been defeated, in overcoming, then you can always win whatever is coming. You can always win. It is up to you to decide, you know, do I want to keep going or do I want to allow this to hold me back or do I want to use this as a building block and not a stumbling block? Mm -hmm. So that's what I learned from those those injuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you. What, um, when you were going through it, what was your kind of mindset about the timeline? Were you looking ahead or just taking it day by day? The second one taught me, the first one I was looking too far ahead because I was trying to make it happen. I was trying to predict an outcome. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the injury happened the second time. I mean, the, yeah, the second time. So when it happened the second time, I decided, you know what? I'm going to take it day by day. Is that saying that if you aspiring to accomplish something in life, sometimes um, patience and consistency is more valuable than intensity? So that's what I thought about. I said, you know what? Take it one by day by day. You saw that dream in your head. You had a dream of going to the 92 Olympics. Maybe that wasn't for you. Maybe the injury happened to teach you something you wouldn't have learned about who you are if you haven't had that injury. So that's what I took from that. And I, I just kept it day by day. Some days I was, okay, you know, ready for that. I stepped back. I stepped two, three steps backwards. And then I walk my way back again. So I let my body lead me. But at the same time, I use my mind to also adapt to what's going on. Because there's a physical side of healing and there's also the mental side of healing. In my experience, I believe that the physical side of healing is only 40%. The mental side is 60%. The doctors can do all the surgery. They can put you back together. But if mentally you don't try to put yourself back together as a whole, then it's going to be very difficult for you to come back because I've seen athletes that have been cleared to do something physically, but mentally they couldn't do it and they just quit. Mm -hmm. So what I really learned about that is just take your time. Don't rush back. And, you know, especially when you're young enough, your body, you have your youth, you know, behind you that will help you heal a lot faster. But at the same time, just take it day by day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did you or how would you advise someone who is recovering from injury? How do they know when they're ready to go back? Um, Basically, like I said, day by day and do all your homework when it comes to your physical side. And one thing that I think is lacking and missing in athletics is I'll call emotional weightlifting or mental weightlifting. And the reason why I said that is because a lot of athletes work on themselves physically. They never work on their mental side. Um, I was fortunate enough years after weightlifting to find how valuable meditation is. Um, even though, you know, as, as I'm still an athlete, but when I go through injuries, I will spend time with my mind because without the mind, there's no body because I always believe that your mind is your battleground. If people can battle mentally and win, the physical side is easy. So finding meditation was able to let me go inward 
and not allow the external forces to distract me from, are you going to be able to do these? No doubts, basically, to not allow the distraction to distract you. So when I went mentally, you know, I do my mental weightlifting every single morning. Sometimes I do it at night as well. So that was that helped me really connect to the person that I am as a person. So I, if I can heal myself mentally, I can be able to heal myself physically. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 the advice I I have for people that are going through an injury, a devastating career, so-called career-ending injury, is to do the mental side. If you don't know how to meditate, there's a lot of meditation classes out there, um, self-help books out there that will really help you in tune into who you are. Even right now, if I have a little injury, I never tell myself, oh my God, is this going to hold me back? Immediately I have that injury, I'll say, oh my God, in two weeks or in three days or in four days, I'm back doing squats again. In fact, right now, I'm already doing squats. Even though I'm, I'm still dealing with the injury, but because the body works for the mind. Whatever you tell the mind, the body will follow. So I'm already telling myself that, guess what? I'm already doing squats. And it's, it's fascinating, two, three weeks later, even though the injury was really bad, I'm back doing squats. Even though I'm doing the the, the physical side, but the mental side is very, very crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of the mental side, your first competition back from your injury, what was your mentality going into that? My mentality was like, have fun. Mm-hmm. Don't hold back. You you already you've been through the worst already. This is the reward of you not allowing people to tell you you can't. You here. So I told myself, just have fun. Don't even think. I wasn't even thinking about it. When I got on that platform, I said, I've done these how many million times? This is just one of the million. I'm gonna do one more. So I just focus on the moment and not think ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. And what um, competitions do you, did you go to after injuries and what did your career play out to be? So after the second injury, I came back, I made the Commonwealth Games. The Commonwealth Games, I know a lot of people don't know what the Commonwealth Games. The Commonwealth Games, are, it's like the Olympics. So the countries of the Commonwealth get together every four years to compete. And so coming back from an injury, I wasn't even expected to medal. He's, ah, he's coming back, he's good. You know, so I made the team. It was in British Columbia, Canada. And the first discipline, which was a snatch, I won the bronze. And we went into the clean and jerk. And first attempt, second attempt, the second attempt was going to win me the gold. That second attempt, I, I experienced something that I've never experienced in my life. I don't know why I experienced that through that. Later on, I found out that there's something called the zone. When an athlete is in zone, like, you know, a basketball player can miss a three-pointer, can miss a free throw, can miss a jump shot. So I was standing on that platform. I looked up into the audience, and I looked down, looked at the bar. That was the last thing I remembered. I grabbed the bar. I didn't even I didn't even feel how heavy the weight was. I just heard the referee just told me to drop the weight. And I dropped the weight. And the coach looked at me and said, you just won the gold. I had this confused look on my face. Like, I didn't know what happened. I, I was in, you know, that thing about an out-of-body experience. Maybe that was what I had then. I don't know why. So I went to I went to the back. The coach said, what's wrong? I said, nothing. You just won the gold. I'm like, really? Yeah. She go, he goes, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know. I didn't feel anything when I lifted that weight. So it was it was one of the most incredible experience. And I've never experienced that since then. And I won two golds and one bronze at the Commonwealth Games. 
And fast forward two years later, went to the 96 Olympics. That was my ultimate dream was to go to the Olympics. And so the opening ceremony of the Olympics, we walked on the track, on the track and they called Nigeria, we walked on the track. As we were walking on the track, it was really strange. That feeling that I got from the Commonwealth Games, I felt it again. And you know how you're watching a movie that people are having flashbacks? People are having flashbacks. People are having flashbacks. People are having like things that happened to them in the past and they keep seeing it. So what happened as I was walking, it must have happened maybe less than three seconds, but it felt like five minutes. So I kept having this flashback and I couldn't hear anything. And if you know, in the opening ceremony of the Olympic, super loud. It was someone pushed the mute button and I kept seeing people that have told me I couldn't do this, but are laughing at me, my injuries, my pain, physical, emotional suffering. I just kept seeing all these things and all of a sudden someone unmute the button and I can see again. I can. I was still walking. It was my body was subconsciously just moving, and I'm like, "Whoa, what just happened?" So a feeling of joy just overcame me. I said, "Wow, I'm home. This is home. This is where they told me I wouldn't be." So we have this. We had this costume, this Nigerian costume, and during the opening ceremony, so I took my hat off, and I threw it into the audience. And then one of my teammates goes, "What are you doing?" He goes, "I goes. I'm happy." I told him, I said, she, he goes, why are you happy? I said, because I'm home. This is where they told me I would never be. I didn't even, it didn't even, I didn't even care if I medal, but me being there, I've already accomplished everything that I set for myself. So I competed in the Olympics and I came in 18th in my weight class. So that was, that was amazing for me. I mean, like I said, coming in 18, it doesn't even really compare to me being there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that freedom and joy you felt helped you to perform better? I think so. I mean, I did my best. I did my actually my personal best at the at the Olympics because now it's like I got nothing to lose. I got everything to gain. You know, I made I think I made all my lifts at the Olympics. I did a, I did a 140 kilo snatch and I did 170 kilos clean and jerk. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so it was it was an amazing experience. That's incredible. Thank you. Um, what were the reactions when you went back home and saw people you knew? And did they see you on TV? Were they like, wow? Actually, the reaction after the Commonwealth Games, they like everybody just flooded to me because we went to the state house to go. Actually, I met the president of Nigeria at that time. I wanted to shake his hands. And because all the people that won gold get to go shake their hands, all the athletes went. But all the gold medalists for the Commonwealth Games did. And after that, it was like my life just changed. It was like everybody knew who I was, who I am. And now people that told me I couldn't do it, they're like, wow, you're so smart. You're a genius. I'm like, I'm not a genius. I just followed my dream, regardless of what you guys told me. And, and I told them, I said, you can follow your dream too. You don't need anyone to co-sign on your dreams. The only person you need is you. As long as you believe in what you're doing, and if a dream speaks to you, there's a reason why that dream came to you. It chose you for a reason. When that dream chose you, and you're going to go, nobody says it's going to be easy. You're going to go through some stuff. But your job is to bring that dream alive because you never know who you're going to inspire. You never know who you're going to touch. By just living your life and do what you love, you can you can touch a lot of people around the world. And um, going to the Olympics, I mean, um, when I went to the Olympics, it was in 96 here. So I decided to um, 
start a new life for myself here in the United States. So I didn't go back home after the games. I stayed behind. But to my surprise, this is what really surprised me. I was the last Olympic weightlifting Commonwealth gold medalist for Nigeria. After I won the gold that year, no Olympic lifters in Nigeria have ever won the gold since then. I didn't know this. So I was talking to one of my teammates back home in Nigeria a few months ago. He said he still have my poster up on the wall that he was the last guy to do it. And, you know, I'm hoping another another lifter, will, that poster will maybe inspire them to be able to do, you know, the same or even better. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Thank you. Coming to the United States, mm -hmm. what was the transition like? And then can you talk about your transition from weightlifting to bodybuilding? Um, bodybuilding was what got me into weightlifting in the first place when I saw oh, Pope yeah. and I, if you, if you remember. I knew deep down that I was going to be a bodybuilder, but I didn't know when. Because I had when I got into weightlifting, that goal shifted a little bit into going to the Olympics. So now that I've accomplished my Olympic dream, now I have to go back to my childhood dream, which was to be a bodybuilder. The transition for me was a little strange because as a weightlifter, all you do is lift weights. We don't care about how good you look. You don't have to look a certain way. As long as you can bring that weight up, that's all that matters. So when I got into bodybuilding, I realized that bodybuilding is an aesthetic sport. It's not a strength sport. So it's not about how much weight you lift. It's how good you look. So what I had to do, I had to flip the coin. I have to leave the mentality of an Olympic lifter behind. Because if I don't, I'm going to keep getting stronger, but I'm not going to build those aesthetics that's you know necessary to be a successful bodybuilder. So when I transitioned into bodybuilding, I wouldn't say it was easier because with weightlifting, my quads were already there because all we do, lower body exercise to be able to strengthen yourself, to be able to lift weight. But bodybuilding, we're not allowed in weightlifting, we're not allowed to do any aesthetic exercise like bench press, bicep curls. You know, we're not allowed to do that. So when I got into bodybuilding, I had to slow down my lower body training. I had to allow my upper body to catch up. So my body was like a triangle. I had the quads on the bottom. And my upper body was this. So I had to like, literally, I only walk my quads maybe once or twice every two weeks because they, they were already there from weightlifting. So the transition was a little bit different when it comes to dieting as well. Because with, with Olympic weightlifting, there are no specific dieting. Just eat, get stronger, lift weights. That's it. But with bodybuilding, you got to eat a certain way. You know, and then during the so-called off-season, you have to eat a certain way. When the season comes in... Let's say you're getting ready for a show in a couple of months or so. You have to cut certain things out of your diet. You have to eat certain things almost every single day, depending on where your body is at. You know, some people diet for about three months, some for six months, some for a month, depending on where your body is at. So that will allow you to know how long you're going to diet to get ready for a bodybuilding competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you learn all of the transitions from your coaches or like, the things about dieting? I actually learned that at first from friends that I met at the gym. There were bodybuilders already competing before I was competing, started competing. So I met a few of them. They taught me, you know, how to diet. But as time goes on, I started learning and researching for myself because, you know, when you someone teach you something, you know, that's their idea, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. So you want to go search for yourself because what works for me might not work for you. But I keep doing your stuff to help me. So after one, after a while, I said, you know what, this is not, it's working, but it's not really giving me what I want. 
So I started doing more research, went on research mode, and I found other stuff that actually helped me. So my first bodybuilding competition, I actually won my weight class. Wow. Even though I don't really know what I'm doing with food, um, I won my weight class. It was an amateur natural. It's a natural. There's different. There's two different bodybuilding um, competition. That's natural, which is you know you know you can't use any performance enhancing drugs, and there's also non-natural. They can use drugs and androgen. They don't test them. Yeah. So I've stayed natural. I never crossed over to that side because my health is more important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the kind of layout of bodybuilding competitions? Like, how does how does that go? How does it go? Okay, with bodybuilding, um, we have weight classes, just like in weightlifting. They have the in bodybuilding, they have the lightweight, the middleweight. I don't know if they still have the bottom weight, lightweight, middleweight, um, light, heavy, heavy, super heavy. And I think they have five or six classes. So then, when I first started competing, I was competing in lightweight. Lightweight is about 155 pounds and a quarter. And um, basically, you just prep for the competition. You have maybe 10 of ten people in, in one weight class. They call you up on stage. There's something called um, the mandatory poses. The mandatory poses, I think there are about seven of them. Um, they have the, the front double biceps, the lat spread, the chest, side chest, the triceps pose the back double biceps, the lat spread, the abs and quads. I think they're all eight, and then they're most muscular. So they compare. They have criterias in place. Um, first of all, they take you to the muscular round, how muscular you are. Then they take you to the symmetry round, how symmetrical you are. And then they take you to the conditioning round, how lean, so-called shredded you are, <laughs> how, how lean, how visible your muscles are. So those criteria will determine who is first, second, third, first, and so on. I see. Yeah. Was your mindset coming into bodybuilding different than what you need to do for weightlifting? Oh, it's the same. I brought the, the, the weightlifting mentality into bodybuilding. Because weightlifting mentality is even if you don't have any competition coming, because if you don't train, you're going to lose strength. And when you lose strength and then you get back to the gym, it's like you start taking one step forward, two steps backwards. So bodybuilders have this thing called the off season where they don't train as much. They eat whatever they want to eat. They can gain close to about 50 pounds, you know, go from, you know, 5% body fat in competition to almost 25 to 30% body fat off season. In the beginning, the guy that taught me, I was doing it that way, but I felt like I felt uncomfortable. I felt unhealthy when I do the off season stuff. So I told him, I said, I don't like this doesn't feel good. So, well, you have to bulk up. And then when you bulk up, you have to shred down. The shredding down is it takes weeks and months to get down to that lean body type you're looking for. And I felt like it was really uncomfortable. And it takes so much mental and and physical stress to get down there. I said, you know what? Let me do this for my own. I just want to go try and do this on my own to see if I don't want to have an off season. I'm going to eat that I'm getting ready for a show. Of course, you want to put on muscle. But I'm not just going to eat whatever I see. You know, I still want to stay at least 90% of my competing weight and shape. He goes, oh, that's not the way you do it. You're going to have to book. I'm like, it's okay. Let me do it my way. So I did it my way. So when I'm getting ready for a show, it takes me half the time to get ready because my body fat is not up higher. 
my water weight is not too high. So it takes me roughly about four to five weeks to get ready for a show, which will take some bodybuilders 15 to 16 weeks to get ready. And then mentally, it's it's really hard on them because they have to cut certain things. So for me, I eat the same amount of food that I eat to get ready for a show than when I'm not getting ready for a show. The difference is I eat a little bit more of those food. So my my own goal is not to gain weight. My goal is to build muscle. Because isn't gaining muscle building, I mean, gaining weight? Not really. Because you can gain weight on the scale. So what percentage of the weight, weight gain is coming from muscle? And what percentage is coming from water? What percentage is coming from fat? That's what you need to weigh. But if I train for a year and I only gain five pounds of muscle, solid muscle, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. I don't need to go on the scale and say, oh, my God, I'm not weighing 200 pounds. To tell you the truth, I don't even weigh myself. I don't know how much I weigh. The only time I get on the scale is when I'm about to check into a competition. Other than that, I just use the mirror as my scale. Mm-hmm. As long as I look the way I want to look, regardless of how much I weigh, I'm happy with that. Mm-hmm. Is that mindset um, freeing and maybe allows you to focus more on the training and conditioning? Yes. It, you know, like most people always ask me, every time people see me, are you getting ready for a show? No. Why do you look like that? I said, this is me all year. Because there's the health side of bodybuilding and there's also the unhealthy side. I can tell you for sure now, a lot of bodybuilders will tell you this. Bodybuilding is one of the most unhealthiest sports ever. You can call it a sport. You can call it a, a hobby, whatever you want to call it. Because it's so unhealthy because most of these guys off-season, they don't take care of themselves. They just eat whatever they want to eat. Their body fat balloons up and... When they do their blood work, you know, they have high blood pressure, they have heart issues, their crackling goes up too high, their blood sugar goes up too high. For me, it's more than the stage. Most bodybuilders only do it for the stage. I do it for the health first. The stage for me is number two. Because at the end of the day, when you walk off that stage, you're going to have who you are as a person, your health. And if you're not healthy, you're not going to have longevity in the sport. And it's funny, I've I met bodybuilders in the late 90s that I we all used to compete together. They've stopped competing years ago. And then they looked at me and said, Moji, you still competing? I'm like, yeah. How do you do this? I said, because I kept myself healthy. And that is very important, to stay healthy and to not get caught up with the lifestyle of the sport. I always say, create your own code. You know, you know, build your own foundation. There's nothing wrong with using people as an example, but make sure you create your own code and live by that code regardless of what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That reminds me of a quote you posted the other day. I think it was something like, everybody has different a different test. And we yeah. all, what was that quote? Yeah, I, you know what? I don't remember that quote. I just, was about everybody has um, a different way to go through life. You know, some people are going to crawl, some people are going to run, some people are going to jog. Whatever your race is, run it to the best of your ability. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what that quote is all about. It's not to look around. Or why is that person lifting this much? Why is that person running this fast? Or why is this person in this team? Why am I not? No, just do what you can. If you have a dream, you have a goal, um, you have a drive. The key is having a drive and not allowing the distractions to distract you because you're easily distracted. Oh, don't go to the gym today. If you miss one workout, you're going to miss two, you're going to miss three, you're going to miss four. Even if you can't give 100% that day, whatever percentage you can give, so for me, as a, fish, as a fitness specialist, I always tell my client, you're not always going to be 100%. Whatever you have that day, give the best you can. 
Some days you come in, you're 100%, then you can give more. But don't look around. Say, why is this person look a certain way? Or why is that person seeing more results that I'm seeing? Everybody has their own race. You just like in life in general, you know, just stay within you and do the best you can for you. And whatever, I always believe that whatever your dream is, whatever your goal is, it will eventually come true. But if you give up, it will never come true. Even if you're dragging, at least you're giving yourself a chance. But when you stop, you're giving yourself zero chance. And I think that was my mentality when I was going through those injuries. I said, if I, even if I'm going one inch at a time, I'm still moving. But if I don't move at all, I'll be stuck in that one spot. And then I'll look back and say, what will I be? Because every time the Olympics come up every four years, it always brings back that memory. Like, oh my God, and I was here. And this every time I hear that Olympics theme song, it just always brings everything back. And if I had listened to what the doctors have told me, that I'm never going to be able to do it, and I didn't even try, I'll look back every year, every four years, that I'll kick myself. And that kind of pain might last for the rest of your life. But if you say, you know what, regardless of what you're telling me right now, what I'm telling myself is more important. Because at the end of the day, I'm the one that's going to be in it, not you. So I feel like sometimes doctors, I don't know what it is, I don't know if it's medicine, that a lot of them don't give people hope. Say, oh, you're gonna, this is going to happen to you in the next two weeks. You're not going to be able, in the next six months, you're going to be over. I'm like, why don't you just give them a glimpse? Because whatever you tell them, it sticks mentally. So our mind will process the word and say, oh, well, the doctor tells me I'm not going to be able to do it. He knows better, so I'm going to believe him. But if you say, you know what, if you try a little bit, I'm not guaranteeing it, but maybe give a little effort. Maybe you might be able to overcome it. And I see that every single day with clients. I was just talking to one of my clients a few days ago, and she came back after the pandemic. Um, she had hip problem, hip pain, shoulder pain, back pain. Everything was hurting. And she goes, I went to the hospital. They want to put me, they want to give me painkillers. The doctor said, you have arthritis, you have bursitis. You're never going to be the same again. She called me. She was crying like, you know what? Get to the gym. She goes, they said I'm not going to get to the gym. She came in. That day we did a little bit with her body weight. She was hurting. So it's okay. Come back next week. Come back the week after. It's been almost, what, 10 weeks? Last week? I said, look at how you're jumping up and down. She goes, yeah, I remember that first day. All the pain that she felt that first day, gone. Gone. So you gone. No more hip pain, no more shoulder pain, no more back pain. She looked at me. She goes, why is this happening? I said, because you had to drive. You, have, you believe in yourself that if I do a little bit, I'm going to get a little bit. And that's all happened. You were doing a little bit. You're getting a little bit. And now the pain is all gone. Now you can tell anyone that's going through what you went through, tell them, don't believe what they tell you. Believe what you're telling yourself. But you got to make an effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that you're able to inspire people so much and now going from being having such a successful career to now mentoring others? How does that feel for you emotionally and mentally? It feels great. It feels, you know, because I didn't get into this to motivate or, you know, inspire people. I got into it because I wanted to do it. And, and I saw that a lot of people were using me as motivation, inspiration. It feels so good to to give that side back to people because a lot of people, have, that side I've been taking away from them. Oh, you're not going to be able to do this. Oh, you're too short. Oh, you're too tall. Oh, you're too skinny. Oh, you're too this. Just give it up. But just giving them a little bit of who they are, that no matter where you are, 
where you're from, what your last name is or not, um, what you do for a living. If you're hoping and aspiring to become something, you have to believe it first. Because if you don't believe it, you'll be easily swayed to give it up. You know what I'm saying? So for me to give them that little light and say, you know what? You can do this, but you have to believe in yourself. I can't believe in it for you. My job is to push you a little bit to bring the breast out of you. But if you believe in it, the sky is not even the limit. People always say the sky is the limit. I don't believe the sky is the limit. Because if you can put people on the moon, mm-hmm. the moon is beyond the skies, uh-huh. right? So you can go beyond wherever you want to go. But you have to have the drive. You have to have the will. You can't allow the distraction to distract you. You're going to lose some friends along the way, but you're going to gain a thousand, a thousand more. Because when I started weightlifting when I was younger, I didn't have any friends. In the, in the whole community that I grew up at, I was the only weightlifter. No one understand my mentality. But you know what? I gained, God knows how many thousand more friends I gained all over the world. I'll get questions. People will ask me questions from all over, from India, Japan, Israel. They'll ask me questions about, oh, what do I do if I want to do this? And like I said, I didn't ask for it. But because of what I did and still doing, brought all those people around. And if I give them a little bit of hope, and my job is done. That's so inspiring. Thank you. Speaking of kind of the importance of goals and dreams, what are some of yours moving forward? My goal moving forward is to, my ultimate, even though as a physical, aesthetic athlete, my goal is to work with clients on the mental side, the athletes on the mental side, mental side of sport, because I feel like that's really lacking. And people that are not athletes, they don't know what athletes go through. The pressure that you put on yourself, number one, the pressure that your your family, your friends, your country put on you. And I don't think there's enough enough money spent or not enough time spent with the mental side of sport. And even with my clients, I always tell them, if your mind is not here, I don't want you here. So there's many times where I actually stop a training session for us to talk about the, the mental side, what's going on. Some of them will just break down, start crying. They will share some stuff with me. I say, okay, let's do it this way. Think about it that way. Here's some book that I've read. If you really want to help yourself mentally, this is some of the book that I've read. I'm still reading. And I, I do meditate. Meditation is very important. I mean, I cannot, I cannot specify that enough. The mind is more powerful than the body. But if you can train your mind to overcome, your body will come with it. So my goal in the future is to work on the mental side of for athletes to really help them overcome the things that they're going through or the things that they went through in the past that they're still struggling with. So even though I'm a physical aesthetic, but I want to work more on the mental side because I see it every single day now. It's happening more and more. Example is Simone Biles in the Olympics is going on right now. Um, yesterday she pulled off out of the all around because she felt like her mind was off. And a lot of people were criticizing her for pulling out and not helping the team win because she felt like she would be a distraction for the team at that point. And she doesn't want to rob those girls if they're going to win the silver bars. Because if she competed and then she messed up the point, they might not medal. So I think, in my opinion, she made the right choice. So I I hope um, athletics in general, they're able to spend more time with the mental side of sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Now we have a few questions from 
some of our listeners, I put up a questionnaire on Instagram and thank you to everybody who wrote on those. First up, we have, what was it like seeing the fans in the Olympics and how did that contribute to the atmosphere? Oh man, your weightlifting is very is a very interesting sport. You have to block out the fans. You really? Can, yeah, because when you walk into a weightlifting arena where the competition is going on, you can hear a pin drop when a lifter stepped on the platform because noises are distracted. The distraction to the it's a distraction to the lifter. So you walk into the auditorium, you see the athletes on the platform. You can't even walk in front of them. Everybody's standing still. So crowd noise doesn't affect lifters. But one thing that affects lifters is the competition's um, adrenaline. You know, you walk into that arena, but like, okay, today is D-Day. You have an extra pump. You have an extra, extra strength. While you will struggle with maybe five kilos in the gym, you want 10 more kilos in competition. So I think the atmosphere of being there affects affects you a little bit, but not the crowd. Mm-hmm. Is after you finish lifting the weight is when the crowd comes into play, but when you lift in, everybody have to stay hush hush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. I wouldn't <laughs> expect that. Like you would think maybe it's like, oh my gosh, look at everybody, but no. you're just in the zone. You wanna you wanna block people out. So when I was competing as an Olympic lifter, I don't look I don't look into the crowd. Mm-hmm. I step on the platform and then I pick a spot at the back of the auditorium where there's no one there, maybe a picture or frame, something. So I just, because you want to have your, your, your little repetition before you get into the platform and lift the weight. So I just look up, take a deep breath and look down. I'm gone. I don't look around and say, who is here to watch me? Once you make contact sometimes with someone in the audience, you might lose your concentration. Mm-hmm. What was the dynamic with the other competitors? It was people were very, they were very friendly. They were very friendly because I mean this is a one in a lifetime event, and you don't even know even if you want to come back to the games four years after, you don't even know if you're going to be able to. So we were able to mingle with all the other competitors. We exchanged jerseys, you know, shoes, and wherever we can because you know when you see something that you like from other country like a tennis shoe or or jogger suit or. Hey, you want to exchange? Even sometimes we don't even speak. They can't even speak English. They speak their own language. They will just say exchange. <laughs> and they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll go into their own room. They'll bring something out. So you start exchanging, you're bargaining with each other. And it was it was fun. We I had a great time. The high the highlight of the games for me, I was able to see athletes that I've watched growing up on TV, in magazines, just being in the same room because when we go to the, the the dining hall is my favorite place where all the athletes dine. I'll just sit there. Oh, that's that person. Oh, that's that woman. At that time, my favorite tennis player was Monica Salas. And I watched her play a lot when I was younger. So I just happened to be in the same um, trap with her from the dining hall back to our room. Like, this is Monica Salas. And I talked to the guy in front of me. I said, can I take a picture with her? Ask her. I was so scared. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been starstruck. I was so starstruck that day. And I said, can I take a picture? You were so nice. So yeah, come, let's take a picture. And that was that was the highlight of the Olympics for me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was very simple, but that was my, my highlight right there. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. How long do you stay with the other competitors? Uh, you mean during the games? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the games is two weeks. So you can hang out with anyone. You can... You know, ask anybody. One thing I love about the games is you can go walk up to anybody. As long as they understand what you're saying, 
I just asked them questions. Um, what do you do for these? What do you do for that? And they, everybody was willing to help each other. So for me, after I finished my competition, I just went to watch other sports, track and field. I went to watch gymnastics. Because as when you have your accreditation as an athlete, you can go into any venue. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was able, I went to watch boxing. So I was just, because mine was done three or four days into the games. So I was able to just do whatever, have fun. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. A lot of fun, yeah. Did you learn a lot from talking with the other athletes? Of course. I learned, I learned a lot about how they prep for their training, how they prep for competition, um, food, rest, dealing with injuries, just the whole thing about the sports in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We got this question several times. How do you find out you're going to the Olympics? Oh, okay. So in weightlifting, there's the, in every weight class, there's an Olympic standard. Let's say, for example, in my weight class at that time, you have to total, let's say you have to total 400 kilos. So maybe you have to snatch 100 something kilos. You have to clean and jerk 100. Once you total that amount of weight, so your federation will send the results to the IOC. And then you get a confirmation from the IOC that you made to the Olympics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In weightlifting, that's what. In, in some sport like track and field, it's true time. How fast. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. like 100 meters, 200 meters. So you can qualify. But if you have more than one person in that weight class and they want to choose one guy, we have this, you have two persons in the weight class. So you're going to have to battle. That's why you have the Olympic trials. So you have to battle the trials to make it to the games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was going through the trials like for you? You know what? The trials was actually more nerve wracking than the games itself. Because if you don't make the trials, you don't go to the games. So the trials, like, you know, I in the morning of the trials, I was like, I was a little scared. Like, what if I don't make it? Immediately that what if jumped into my mind, I just crossed it. I'm like, no. Don't go there. Now you now you doing what I call mental gymnastics. You're throwing yourself upside down. I said, I'm gonna make it. I've always wanted to go to the Olympics. This is it, and this is the one, and I'm making it. So I, I was able to talk myself out of the negative one, my me- negative thoughts, and talk myself back with the positive stuff. And once I made it, once I got that confirmation that I made it, I, I my my mind just came down. But when I made it to the games, I wasn't even scared at the games. I didn't get any pressure at all. I just felt like, oh, I'm just competing in the Olympics. I'm here. You mm-hmm. know, but to make it there, sometimes the best of the best athletes don't make it to the games because they didn't do well at the trials. Even if you're a world champion. If wow. you don't yeah, you don't automatically go to the games for a world champion. You have to qualify during the trials. And if you don't make it, a little mistake during the trials, you're out. Wow. Yeah. How yeah. did you deal with that pressure? At the trials. Well, I just told myself, this is what you've always wanted. This is this is where you you everything that you've done, you brought yourself to this moment. You brought yourself to this pressure. Is that how you deal with it or you allow the pressure to deal with you? I chose to deal with it. And I just, you know, went back, take a deep breath, and just focus. Like this is it. This is your chance. After this, you might four years later, you know, maybe you're not gonna be able to make it. So I just actually put myself on the spot even more because I wanted to go to the games. And when I got that confirmation, I just was, wow, that was it. I didn't even believe I was still, I've made the Olympics until I checked into the Olympic Games Village 
in Atlanta. But you know, this, when something they tell you something like, ah, it's not true until you see it. Mm-hmm. And when I checked in, that's when I knew I was really at the games. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Moji, for coming on the show. And just your advice and your wisdom is just a pearl that the listeners are cracking open the clam by staying till the end. Thank you guys for listening. And thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.